here to celebrate Him as our Heavenly Father. But I, I want to speak today specifically to men, but also to all of us, you know, especially if we're thinking about being a parent or understanding parenting or you know, let's say you remain single. That's your calling in life. I believe that what I'm going to share today even applies to people who are going to mentor and nurture other people in their Christian life because that's really what parenting is all about. So I think we're going to all learn something this morning. So Father, I do come before you today and I want to express gratitude. You're an amazing Father. You're a loving Father. You're a forgiving Father. Uh, you're the perfect father, and yet even in the midst of being a perfect father, you've, been, you've had disappointments with your kids. We're your kids. We've let you down at times, and we ask you to forgive us where we have done that, Father. And we recognize today that even if people grow up in a perfect environment, we can still mess up. So Lord, I pray that you will help us as we hear this word from, your, from the word of God. We hear what you have to say to us today, that we, Lord, will begin to model healthy family life, that we will become, uh, you know, really a, a group of people that will help our culture understand what it means to nurture, mentor, care for, and parent others. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, uh, amen. You may be seated. Butch O'Connor was a, a fighter pilot assigned to an aircraft carrier in the South Pacific during the Second World War. One day as he took off on a mission with, you know, his, with the flight crew, as, as he'd gone out with them, uh, he realized that someone had not topped off his tank. And so he knew he didn't have enough fuel to go on this mission. So he made a, a decision. He probably radioed his commander, you know, in their, in their flight and said, you know, I'm, I'm short on fuel. I have to go back and refuel and I'll catch up to you. And so as he's flying back to his aircraft carrier, he realized that there was a formation of Japanese airplanes that were about ready to attack his aircraft carrier. He's all by himself now, and there's a whole crew of these uh, pilots up there going to destroy his aircraft carrier. So he does the only thing he knows what to do. He, he literally dives into their formation. He creates havoc. He diverts them away from the fleet. And after a, a really a frightening air battle, Butch O'Hare's tattered plane you know, limps back to the carrier, and um, and because of that, he won uh, and recognized as one of the nation's uh, uh, heroes and won some of the highest military honors for his act of bravery because he was the only one fighting them off. And so later on, uh, because of his significant contribution and because he was a kid from Chicago, Chicago named their international airport after him. And that's what we get the name O'Hare International Airport. Many of us are probably flown in. They have no idea the story behind that international airport's name. And this is it. But there's an even more interesting aspect to the story because years earlier there was a man in Chicago called Easy Eddie. And in those days, in the 30s, Al Capone virtually owned the city. It was mobbed run. And he was involved in things like bootlegging and murder and prostitution. And Easy Eddie was Al Capone's lawyer. And he kept Big Al out of jail. And for that, he got a lot of money. As a matter of fact, he became extremely wealthy. And he lived like a king on an estate so large it filled an entire city block. But Easy Eddie had one soft spot in his heart. He had a son, and he wanted his son to have the best of everything. So he bought his son the best clothes, the best cars, a great education. And despite Eddie's involvement with the mob, he decided, you know, he was trying to teach his son what's the difference between right and wrong. How many think that's a little bit of a paradox there, you know? You're, you're doing criminal activity, but you're trying to teach your kid the right thing, right? But he, but he had that in his heart. He wanted his kid to grow up and to be unlike himself. He wanted him to be a better man. But there was two things that Eddie knew he could not give his son. And the first one was simply a good name. And the second was a good example. And he recognized that these two things were so important. And so deciding to give his son these two things to him became more important than all of the lavishing of riches into his son's life. He realized this is even more critical. And so Eddie decided to rectify the wrong that he had been committing. And so he went to the authorities and he basically exposed Al Capone's operation to, you know, to those in the authority. They eventually... Uh, East, 
Easy Eddie testified in court and helped contribute to Al Capone's incarceration. How many know that when you do that kind of stuff, you're not, you're not the favored person in that organization? And so he recognized he was endangering himself. He knew there would be a cost, but he wanted to leave his son a good name. In other words, he wanted to come clean. He wanted to be a man of character and integrity. Within a year after testifying against Al Capone, Easy Eddie was walking down the streets in Chicago, and uh, his life ended in a blaze of gunfire. And so he was obviously murdered. But he had given his son uh, the greatest gift that a person can leave their children, and that's the gift of character. And that's what I want to focus our thoughts today and and... Uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing price that some people have to pay in order to do that. Actually, I would argue that if we're going to give the greatest gifts to our children, it's always at the expense of ourselves. It's always at the expense of our life. And um, so Easy Eddie's son was actually Butch O'Hare, the young man that saved, you know, a whole bunch of people's lives in World War II. So actually he was able to instill in him incredible values in his life. So the greatest gift that a person can leave their children, as I say, is the gift of character. The difference between a good reputation and character is that reputation is what other people say about you. Character is who you really are. It's what God sees about you. And what God sees and what people say sometimes are two different things. It's more important to be a person of quality of character than it is to have a good reputation. When the Apostle Paul, and that's I think what God wants to do is fashion character in our lives. When the Apostle Paul wrote to a newly formed congregation, he describes himself as a spiritual father. So these are not biological children, okay? These are people he's brought into the faith, he's preached the gospel, they've become a congregation, it's a church in Thessalonica, and Paul wasn't there a long time, and then he's writing back this letter to them, and eventually goes back and visits later on. And he describes these people as his spiritual children. Now, one of the most powerful things that can happen in our life is this, that you know, maybe we've grown up in a home, and maybe it, you know, we can all sit down here and say it could have been better, and some people say I couldn't have asked for a better parent, and that's great. But even in the midst of a broken home life, God as our Heavenly Father, as we submit our life to Him, God will bring people into our lives who will become like a father to us. He will bring mentors into our lives. He will bring people into our lives to speak into our lives, to encourage us to develop. Now, you know, we have to be willing for that to happen in our lives too. I mean, we can't just, you know, come to church erratically, never get involved in people's lives and expect that to happen by osmosis. No. I believe we have to make commitments. We have to get involved in, in smaller units. We have to get to know people. And, you know, God will set, the Bible said, the solitary into families. And I believe he does that. And he brings significant people in our lives who can really mentor and shape our lives. And I was fortunate as a young person, 21 years old, gave my life to Christ. God brought me to an amazing church. The church family became my family. You know, I, I was there all the time. I got involved in that church's life. I served in that church. I got to know the pastor. He actually started mentoring some of the young men in our church. I got to know him personally. Uh, eventually, as I began to feel a stirring to, to become a pastor, I, I talked to my pastor. I said, I'd like to learn a little bit about what you do and you know, come out and help you. And so I would go on calls with him. I went and visited prisoners with him. I went to the hospital with him. I went to homes with him. I got to meet people in the church that nobody even knew existed because they were shut-ins. But the pastor had an amazing heart and he related to people in this community. I got to see all of that. I got to pray with him. How many know that kind of shapes something inside of you when you're around people, godly people, good people? It affects how you see life. Well, in Second Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we discover something about the Apostle Paul and how he perceived his life and ministry. And I want us to look at that briefly this morning. And we're going to pick up uh, in verse 11. That's probably going to be our theme verse, but we're going to look at seven verses this morning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. 
So Paul's understanding of his ministry, of his, of his leadership to this group of people was as a father dealing with children. And so we have this idea of spiritual parenting. Now, there's not one of us in this room that can say, this does not apply to me. If you and I are a child of God, we're called by God, God has called us to make disciples, and each one of us is called to be a spiritual parent. And so I believe what I'm going to share directly, specifically to fathers, is also indirectly as well to everyone in this room, as you start to think about, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian, and what does it mean to make a disciple, and how do I learn to become a spiritual parent? And Paul actually describes uh, here one of the critical aspects even of being a leader in God's church. He says this. He says regarding the elders or the leaders, he says, first of all, here's the qualification. He must manage his own family well. Isn't that interesting? In other words, he's got to get a grasp in the natural realm how to care for people and do it well and see that his children obey him. In other words, have the kind of relationship that the children, you know, actually want to obey. You know, I think there's a difference between imposing things on people and creating that desire within another person to say, you know what, I so respect and love and appreciate this person who's mentoring me, this person who's fathering me, this person who's mothering me, that I want to do what they're saying because I sense that what they're saying to me is out of a heart of love. Isn't that powerful? When you know people care deeply for you, it's far easier to listen to them. How many say that's true? You know, if you thought this person has your well-being in mind, this person has demonstrated concern and care over you, you're going to be more apt to listen to what they have to say. Isn't that true? We're not talking about nagging people here. We're not talking about lording it over people. We're talking about relating to people in a loving way. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Then he skips down to verse 15, and if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is his church. So in other words, managing the church is like managing a family. If I can't manage my personal family, how am I going to manage God's family? You see what he's saying? He's saying that's the prerequisite. That, that helps people know that you could actually handle more responsibility. And isn't that true in life? That the reason why we don't give people full responsibility at first is because we have to see how they do in a smaller sphere. And when you're in a smaller sphere, if you can handle the smaller sphere, if you are faithful in the little things, then God can entrust you and I with greater responsibilities. But if we're not responsible in the little things, how can God entrust us with greater responsibilities? And listen, folks, when God brings people into our lives, when God brings children into our homes, those children don't belong to us ultimately. They belong to Almighty God, and God has entrusted their lives for you to care for them. And you have an accountability to God for how you're caring and responsible for this life. That's a major responsibility. Isn't that true? So we have to see it that way. So God gives us responsibilities. And when we manage them well, then God gives us more responsibility. And if we can handle that, God gives us more responsibility. And that's the way it should work. So now writing to this church, he reminds them of his own, I would call, parental concern over their lives. And we see here not only three ingredients of what I would call pastoral ministry, but three characteristics of what it means to be a godly parent and particularly a godly father. And so I I just say the first one is simply that godly fathers extend themselves for their families. In other words, they're willing to give of themselves for others. They're willing to lay down their lives for their family. It's not, you know, what they're getting out of it. It's what they're putting into it. And you know, I can always tell a level of maturity in a person's life based on how they perceive life. If you're looking at life of what I can get out of it, that tells me we're still at an immature level. It's when we get to that stage in our life where we realize it's not what I can get out of it, it's what I can 
put into it. It's not what I can get, it's what I can give. That's a movement of maturity in our lives. And so now we're, we're looking at investing in other people, not for anything we're going to get out of it, but for what's going to happen for them. We're doing it for their sake. That's a sign that we're maturing, that we're, we're ready to parent and nurture and care for other people. And Paul says it that way. He's willing to lay down his life for others. So rather than being a burden to their families, godly fathers bear their family's burdens. You know? And let's take a look at these verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 6 it says, we were not looking for praise from men. In other words, I'm not doing it for me. You know, A lot of the philosophers of that day, the rhetoricians, would come in and speak eloquently and they wanted the affirmation and praise of others. That's why they were doing what they were doing. But he goes, no, we didn't come in to do that. He says, we're not looking from you or anyone else as apostles of Christ we could have been a burden to you you know we could have been but we weren't then again in verse 9 he says surely you remember brothers our toil and hardship we work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel to you in other words Paul didn't you know do this for what he could get out of it it wasn't about the money for Paul it was about what he could give to other people's lives this was a brand new church. He knew they, they, could, they were brand new believers. That was not what it, where his focus was. There's, there's a distinction here between the two terms, toil and hardship. Toil points to the weariness involved in labor, and the hardship is the challenge of working day and night. Paul worked day and night. And what that means is he didn't work all night long, but he was working in the evenings. He'd work in the mornings, in the afternoons, in the evenings. How many have ever worked like that? You're working day and night, mornings, afternoons and evenings how many go that's tiring after a while you know yeah, what's that yeah that's what a mom does yeah that's what parenting is working day and night there's no end to it you know i was reading a number of years ago there's a correlation between pastoring and housewives your work is never done i, I relate to that and you hardly see what you're doing you know, Patty jokingly says, let him cut the lawn. At least he sees what he's doing. You know, <laughs> that's the truth. I mean, seriously, you rarely see what you are accomplishing because you're working with people, right? And people do all kinds of funny stuff. You know, you think they're moving forward and then they go sideways. They go backwards. They do all kinds of things. And I'm just pointing that out. So you cannot focus on what you're seeing because that's... Even as a parent, you're going, I thought they were further along than this, right? And then there are moving moments when your kids do something or say something, you go, wow, they really did get it. You know, that's so exciting. Paul was carrying the burden of establishing this church on his back. And I think that's what fathering does. They take the responsibility for their families, they're carrying the burden. By the way, there is a burden. You have no idea how, how deep the burden is. I remember... In 1994, I'd served here for 10 years, and when I resigned, the day I drove out of, the, out of Red Deer, it, and I didn't even realize this, I felt like 10,000 pounds lifted. You don't realize you're carrying this tremendous burden for something. There's a weight to it. And I think when we're responsible and conscientious, we're going to feel the weight of our family. We want them to do good. We find ourselves praying and crying out to God for people. That's just the nature of this. Uh, to do what is necessary for the betterment of our families. And I put it in this order. First of all, spiritually and then financially. I think in our culture we've reversed it. I think most fathers feel the pressure of the finances of the family. But I, you know, and they usually defer the spiritual part to their wives. But I believe biblically you've got it backwards primarily the father should be concerned about the spiritual well-being of his home. If you're, a, if you're a, a man today in this room and you're a godly man, you say, well, I haven't done it that way, pastor. It's never too late to change. Yeah, but my kids grew up. You still got grandkids. It's never too late to change. You say, but you know, I've, I've done it so poorly for so long. How can I do it better? Begin to seek God. Begin to say, Father in heaven, forgive me. Help me from this day forward to be a godly father and grandfather. Because you can even have adult kids, and they still need you as a father. 
Folks, if you could write this in your soul, if you could just say, I'm going to put the spiritual things ahead of the financial things. I'm going to make decisions that are going to have the spiritual well-being in my family, the foremost decision, and not worry so much about the financials. The financials will take care of themselves when we put God's kingdom first. You see, the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to us. So let's stop focusing on what we see and start focusing on what really matters. And let's face it, when God is at the center of our lives, everything changes. Even the burden shifts, and you and I don't feel overwhelmed by it anymore. God is helping us carry that load. Jesus says, come to me and learn of me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you feel overwhelmed by the burden of being a father today, I want to invite you to Jesus. I want to encourage you to go to him and allow him to share that load with you. It's a lot easier, let me tell you, a lot easier. What's interesting here is he says... Not only was the godly father, uh, well, point eight, what was that again? Not a burden to their family, but now they're seen here as gracious and gentle towards their families. That's not interesting. You know, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to be a strong person, and yet I believe strength can be amplified by gentleness. It's the, other, it's the idea of meekness. It's strength under control. It's being a secure person, knowing who you are. I don't have to be a bully to get my way. I need to just serve my family and be gentle in my approach. Listen to what it says here. You know, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. There's a gentleness required here. So Paul is describing this parenting as being a godly father, like being like a mother. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. You know, when you're secure as a person, you don't need to prove anything. Too many people are trying to be something they're not. And you know what? We do all kinds of stupid things. No amens? We don't have to. You know what? Find your security not in what you do in life, but who you are in life. Find your security in your relationship with Christ. Because you know what? You know, I might not always be pastoring. There's going to be a day I'll be unable to do it, maybe. I may not be able to take on this load. But you know what the deal is? My, my identity, I don't want it to be in what I do. I want my identity to be in who I am in Christ. That's the focal point. That's what we need to focus in on. So no matter what the changing circumstances of life are, you and I are not shattered because, you know, maybe, you know, we, we're, we're not, you know, the powerful person or the person of influence we once were, but we are secure because we know who we are in Christ and we know that what we bring to people's lives is the presence of the living God, that we can affirm and encourage and affect other people's lives. You know what's interesting about a nursing mother? When a mother's nursing, she has to be concerned about everything she eats. How many know that's true? You know, Warren Worsby says the nursing mother eats the food and transforms it into milk for the baby. But how many mothers have discovered if you eat the wrong thing, the baby suffers? And then the mom says, and so do we, later. Yeah, because the baby's upset and crying and everything else. But you have to kind of pay attention to what you're eating. So what does that teach me as a, as a, as a mother? What do, you, what do you learn from that? Pay attention to what you're taking in. Because what you're taking in is going to affect the people as you're going to give it out. Do you know, I think that that's a principle in life, that you and I have to be concerned about what we're taking in. And as a father, go, oh, I can handle this stuff. Yeah, but you know what? It's producing something inside of you you don't even realize, and it's coming out of you. You and I need to be very concerned about what we're feeding ourselves so that we can produce the right kind of attitude and spirit and you know, nourishment for the lives of other people. You know, a godly father must watch over and guard his own soul in order to nourish his family. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, now, it's a powerful chapter. I've preached this at a pastor's conference, this whole chapter. And I talked about leading from a godly soul. He says, 
Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine, which is teaching. In other words, watch what you say. Watch what you're teaching people. Watch what you're teaching by your example. He says, watch your life and doctrine. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, you know, you can never not be a diligent person. You have to be a, a vigilant person. You follow what I'm saying? There's got to be a vigilance to your life. You've got to pay attention to what you're taking in. You've got to pay attention to what's coming out. And you've got to watch you know, your actions. Because people are watching it. And children are the perfect mimics, right? They're imitators. They're just copying everything you're doing. So it's very important that we do the right thing. Second characteristic of a godly father is they're an example to their families. The way we live speaks louder than our words. And how we live at home is the real measure of a father. You know, you can pretend to be all kinds of things in public. You can pretend to be something in church that you're not at home. I'm going to tell you something. When, when, a, and when a wife and children speak about the husband and the father, that's the true measure of the person. Because you can't, you know, you're there 24-7, Right? You follow what I'm saying? That is so important. So there's going to be a consistency in our life. You know, what we are in public is what we are in private. There shouldn't be any duplicity. It should be the same. And that has a powerful effect and influence in our children's lives. I'm not saying that all wayward children are a result of, of hypocrisy in the home, but many of them are. Because what they heard and what they saw were two different things. And that causes great confusion. There needs to be consistency. Should there not be? Of course there should be. And so I'm just challenging us. You know, consider what's going on. You should be the same all the time. People should see the same thing. And uh, that's important. See, Paul says this. You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. So now Paul is calling two witnesses. See, in the ancient world, you had to have two witnesses. Paul says this. You're, you're witnesses of how we live, but God also is a witness of how we lived. And this is how we lived, he said. You know, he wants to establish something. He wants them to understand. Gene Green points out they had conformed to both God's laws and human law. In other words, you know, they were, you know, God was looking at what they were doing as well as they were watching what they were doing. And so he challenged them. And this is a powerful challenge. Could you imagine coming to the Corinthian church? You know, you know how messed up that church was? Oh, they had all kinds of problems. This is what Paul says to them. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, if you just copy my life, you'll be okay. How many of you could just say that? You know, just, just do what I'm doing and you'll be fine. You'll be a good Christian. Everyone say, yeah, I'm a pattern for people to follow. Should we not be? Shouldn't every father be a pattern to his child how they ought to live, how they ought to have the right attitude, how they ought to think, the decisions they're making, the respect that they're showing? Can I just say something? If, if I'm as a husband not showing respect to my wife, what's going to happen? My children are not going to show respect to their mother. But if they see the father showing respect to the mother, the children will automatically begin to show respect to the mother. You're setting the pattern. How, how many? This is, very, this is a simple sermon. Has anybody figured this out yet? <clears throat> but it's so simple, and yet we know it's kind of challenging, isn't it? Because what I'm really basically saying to you is, you need to live the life. You need to have a good, you need to learn the right pattern and then become the right pattern so that other people are following the pattern. It's almost like, you know, when you're working, you know, if you're a a carpenter, a lot of carpenters will do this. They measure out a board and then they make that the board, the rule. They just cut measure boards off of that. But if you're not careful, how many know you can start making mistakes from measuring off from the pattern? That's true. You can, you can get off by doing that trick. You know, so we have to be as close to the pattern as possible. Isn't that true? You know, Paul is saying, I'm tr- I am following the pattern that Christ laid down. And if you follow me, you're going to be close to that pattern. I'm giving you a visible pattern to follow. Aren't you, do you realize why God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ? To lay down a pattern how we should live. If you see Jesus, you see what God's like. If you see Jesus, you have a pattern of how you and I should live. 
You know, when I was in college, in Bible college, my, my working on my undergraduate degree, just before I left, my last year, I wrote a paper on pastoral responsibilities, and I made a decision. You know, the church has a certain idea what a pastor should do. I made a decision. I'm gonna, I, I did two things. One, what does the Bible say a pastor should do? And number two, I wanted to pattern my life after a pastor. And I looked through the whole Bible, and I said, okay, I'm going to pattern my life after Jesus. He is the perfect pastor. And there's some things that Jesus does that I try to emulate because I believe he's the perfect pattern. That's what we should be striving for, to follow in that pattern. He describes here that they live their lives as holy. When we think of holy, we always think of saintly, right? You know, otherworldly, and and those are true thoughts. But, you know, we have to remember Paul also called the Corinthians saints, and we know they weren't very holy. Or, you know, the word saint and holy is actually interchangeable. So what does he mean by this word holy? Well, there's a lot of meanings to the word, and one of them is to be set aside to fulfill God's purposes. So in other words, we're living to fulfill God's purposes for our lives is really the idea behind holiness. So if you, if you get up in the morning and say, Lord, I want to do your will today, and to the best of my ability, I'm going to follow your will today, you're living a holy life. How's that? It's that simple. You know, we make it, you know, mysterious. We make it like you got to be walking on water every day. You know, it doesn't work that way. It just means I'm doing what God's asking me to do today. That's living a holy life. Secondly, Paul described their example as righteous. In other words, they were doing the right thing. It was practical righteousness. Because there's two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. There's the righteousness that Paul talks about in Romans that's a right standing before God. And then there's Matthew talking about righteousness, which is the right actions in life. And God wants us to do the right things. And every day we're confronted with choices, are we not? And we have to decide what's the right thing to do in this situation. And sometimes we need God's wisdom and say, Lord, show me what's the right thing to do here. And when I do what God wants me to do, that's the right thing. That's being righteous. How's that? So it's not just I'm righteous before God in a legal standing before him, you know, in a a theological standing, but I'm living right. You know, some people are living wrong. Isn't that true? Even as Christians, they're making, they're living poorly. They're living wrong. They're not living right. God wants us to live right. And then Paul says this, uh, well, it refers, Warren Worsby says to, uh, integrity, uprightness of character and behavior. Finally, Paul's last term mentioned is living a blameless life. Now, we're not talking that you never make a mistake. There's not one person in this room can say, I've never made a mistake. I'm sinless. That's not going to work. We've all had moments where we've made, we've made mistakes. There's all moments where we've sinned. There's moments where we've not been blameless. So what is blameless? Well, it's a life that... Uh, let me quote Gene Green. I, I really like what he says. He says, The testimony that a person lived a blameless life appeared frequently in ancient, well, we could say epitaph, but they're using the word epigraphs, and especially in funeral inscriptions to describe people who had faithfully fulfilled their obligations throughout their life. Now, how many know that most of us don't relate to this kind of thinking? But in the ancient world, people were concerned about living the right kind of life, and that there were certain obligations you had. Now, when you lived in an ancient world, you were, you were in a household, and you just didn't do your thing. You had a place in that household, and you had obligations in that household, and you fulfilled those obligations. We're living in a culture today that has no sense of obligation. And that's why there's so much brokenness today. That's why I tried to point out last week, you know, people are struggling with this covenant concept, that we're covenant people, and that you and I can't just break covenants. You see? That when we die, some of us, you know, it's not about, I'm going to shock you. See, we think, oh, it's about being happy. No. It's about being holy. It's about doing the right thing. It's about fulfilling the right obligations because in the end, you will be happy with yourself. You see, when you and I just live for ourselves to be happy, we make self-centered, selfish choices and eventually we're miserable because we no longer respect ourselves. And I'm trying to help you understand that you want to live a happy life peace-filled life, you want to have to live with yourself. You want to actually respect yourself. 
And I'm trying to encourage you to live out your obligations and do the right thing and fulfill God's will for your lives so at the end you will die, you will be preparing to meet your maker with a sense, I've lived my life well. And somebody said, Pastor, you're going to share this sermon this morning. What about the people who have lived poorly? What are you going to say to them? I'm going to tell them it's never too late. I said, even the thief on the cross who was ridiculing Jesus had a change of mind, and God was so gracious, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But I'm going to tell you, he got saved by the skin of his teeth. (laughs) You know, that's not the way you want to go in. You want to live life well. You want to live life with integrity. You, You know, the word integrity means to be integrated. You don't want to be fragmented. We're living in a fragmented culture. People are not whole today. There's so much brokenness inside of people. That's because they lack integrity. They lack this integration. They lack this wholeness. Listen, folks, you and I have to live with a purpose. And when you live like that, you become a pattern for other people to live. Other people go, that's how you're supposed to do it. Yes. And we need a lot of patterns in red deer. We need a lot of examples in red deer. We need a lot of young people to see how a husband should treat his wife. We need to see a lot of examples how a father should treat his children. We need a lot of examples of single people who say, you know what, I may not be married, but I'm going to mentor and nurture and parent people. Are we following this? And then I want to move on to the third characteristic. Godly fathers verbally edify their families. The word edify means to build up, to strengthen, to encourage Not only do this through their actions, but also through their words. Children need verbal affirmation. Wives need verbal affirmation. You know, it's important we tell people what we really think about them. You know what our biggest problem is? We wait till they die. Then we have these beautiful eulogies and tell people how awesome they were. We should have what I call living eulogies, where we tell people what we really think of them. That's powerful, right? And we should tell them when they least expect it, not just on a Father's Day. That's nice. But what about on another day, you know, just turning to your spouse and saying, you know, I so value and love you and appreciate you. Man, people need this words of affirmation. Listen to what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 2.11. He says, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live the lives worthy of God who's called you into the kingdom and glory. The power of words. Do you know how powerful words are? When people know you believe in them, they behave a certain way. When people know you trust them, you know, I tell my daughters, I trust you. And you know what my, my, my daughters say to me, Dad, we don't want to disappoint you. We know that you trust us. I'm not going to be with them 24-7. They're, they're grown up now. They can make all kinds of decisions. But they go, how would this affect, you know, would this please my dad? See, when you affirm people over and over and you love them and they feel that, they just want to rise up to that, you know? Listen to what happened when Jesus was starting his ministry. He hadn't done anything. No miracles, folks. And he's getting baptized, and a voice from heaven says, This is my son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. You know, I had the privilege this Tuesday. I should have put it on the video. You know, I went with my family. It was, we only had three tickets to my daughter's graduation. My, my youngest daughter, Rachel, graduated. She convocated on Tuesday at the U of A. She got her teaching degree. And Andrea came up. I was so proud of Andrea, my oldest daughter. She was there affirming her sister. That's powerful. So I told my oldest daughter, I'm so proud of you, the way you can affirm and encourage your sister for doing this. That speaks so well of your character, I said. What am I doing? 
I want her to know, too, that she needs to be affirmed, too. Right? How important was that? And then the youngest daughter, you know, we took pictures, you know. They had little things where you could put proud dad and proud mom. Len, did you take a picture with Sarah with proud dad on it? You didn't, but I did on mine. Patty had proud mom. You know, I said to Rachel going up, I said, I feel like crying. She goes, don't, because I'll start. You know, it was such an emotional moment. It was so emotional, you know, but that's an achievement. But, you know, to say that before they start. See, Jesus was starting his ministry, and the Father spoke these words. Now, you know, what happens after the baptism in chronological order in the life of Jesus? What's the next thing that happens? The temptation in the wilderness. You know, I've come to a conclusion. When people feel secure and affirmed, it's harder to tempt them. It's harder to tempt them. You know, I read somewhere, somewhere you can only tempt people who are dissatisfied. But when a person's completely satisfied with who they are and what they've got, it's really difficult to tempt them. Isn't that beautiful? You see what I'm getting at? How important it is, this affirmation, the Father's words, you know, Not only was Jesus able to overcome the temptation in the wilderness because of his understanding and use of the word of God, which Jesus did do, Jesus was secure and therefore realized his significance did not come from anything the enemy tempted him to do. Because if you read the temptation, what is the temptation? If you are the son of God, do this. And Jesus had heard just before, you are my son. I am well pleased with you. You don't need to do anything. Wow, you don't need to perform to somehow please me. You already please me, Jesus. You are already my son. And some of us need to hear this message right now because when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you became a son and a daughter. And the Father says to you this morning, I love you and I'm well pleased with you even before you do anything. You don't need to perform for God, folks. And if you can get that in your innermost being and into your spirit, all the service that you'll ever do in the future is not to seek his approval or to gain his approval. You already have his approval. It's flowing from his approval. How many know there's a big difference from seeking approval to flowing from approval? Do you think there's a big difference? It's all the difference in the world. Then you're secure. You're less likely to do stupid things. You know? Last week, leading up to the cross, this is what Father does for his son. He knew who he was, it says. The Father now helps sustain him in his darkest hour. Now my heart is troubled, Jesus said. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came into this world. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven and said, I've glorified it, and it will be glorified again. The father spoke to the son, said, yeah, you're on the right track. Keep it up. You know, just because you tell somebody, you know, it's like the guy that got married, says to his wife, I told you when I got married, I loved you, and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. (laughs) Well, you know, that sounds like, well, that's great, but you know, how many know we need to be assured? And I'm convinced that most people sometimes struggle with doubt. Sometimes, you know, there needs to be a little affirmation, a little encouragement, right? We need to communicate with people. Nothing's changed, so I just need to keep affirming this. Nothing's changed. This is how I feel. How important is that? As a matter of fact, the Proverbs teaches us the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. To have people speaking words of life, Words of affirmation, words of encouragement, words of urging. Hey, when somebody does the wrong thing, say, hey, listen, you know what? I believe better of you. I'm disappointed by this. That's probably more painful than anything you can say to a person. You know, I'm disappointed in your behavior. This is not like you. Yeah, you're right. I'm wrong. You know, I'm disappointed with myself. Well, you know, aren't you glad God's a forgiving God? And I want you to know I'm going to forgive you. Powerful words. Words bring hope, healing, and help. We need to know that. In 19, I'm going to close with this. In 1992, in Barcelona, Spain, was the Olympics. 
And the world is watching the parable of a father's love being enacted because, you know, the 400-meter race, Great Britain's Derek Redmond had a lifelong dream of winning the gold medal and one of the favorites. But as he entered the back stretch, he was sent sprawling by the ripping pain of a torn hamstring. Wow, that's painful. And by a sheer act of the will, he struggled to his feet in excruciating pain, began hopping toward the finish line. Suddenly, Derek's father came out of the stands, passed the security guard, threw his arm around his son, and in a voice choked with emotion, he whispered, Come on, son, we can do this together. And the crowd cheered and wept as they watched the father, half carrying his wounded son, jerkily going down the track and across the finish line. That's a powerful image. You know, that's an image of what God the Father's like. He's there for us. He's never going to forsake us. He's never going to let us down. He'll be with us right to the very end. He's going to make sure we finish. He's the author and he's the finisher of our faith. We can be encouraged by that. But you know, I want to challenge us today. As men, maybe we feel like we're limping down the racetrack. I want you to know God's spirit is there. He's an advocate. He's a comforter. He's running with us as we run this amazing race. I think of this great life, this great Christian life as an incredible metaphor. You know, the race is an incredible metaphor of the Christian life. And yet the Father's there, waiting, empowering, encouraging us in this race. And I believe as godly fathers, we need to do that for our kids. You know, we need to be cheering them on. We need to be their greatest cheerleaders. We need to cheer one another on. We need to be spiritual mentors beyond even our biological children and, and come alongside of people. And I want to just close with these verses. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you know, just think of all the heroes of the past. You know, think about their great endurance. Think about the suffering that so many of our fellow believers have endured in the past to keep the faith. They're just shining examples. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And many people believe that the sin, it's singular, is actually the sin of unbelief. We just stop trusting God. That's all it is. We stop trusting God. And we shouldn't, you know. And let us run with perseverance. Now, how many know perseverance? That's a strong word. To persevere means you just keep doing. And when you keep doing and you keep doing and you keep doing and you just keep doing, eventually you get to the finish. You know, like I told Rachel, listen, I'm so proud of you because you persevered. And now you got to the finish line here. But you're going to start a new race now. You're going to be a teacher. And her and I went out, had a lunch together yesterday. And we sat down to talk because she's now teaching on a native reserve. And we talked about these kids and their backgrounds and the lack of parenting and all the things. And what is she going to be able to bring into that situation? And you know what? It's not just about educating people with information from school books. It's about helping them live life successfully. And I said, you have an advantage because most people don't know how to do it, but you do. And we discuss strategies on how to help these kids become successful. And how to break out of the cycle of addictions and poverty and all the rest of it. Isn't that amazing? And you know the good news is God has a power to break us all out of our addictions. That's, there's a redemptive power that can break us out of those things and we can become the people God designed for us to become. And then it says here, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's the pattern, folks the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him. What was the joy? To see other people come into his kingdom. He did this for you and for me. Listen, when we stop living for ourselves and we start living for others, there's a joy that comes into our lives, such as we've never known before. That's when we know we're maturing. It says, scorning and shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I want to encourage you this morning, don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. It's worth it. My prayer is that each one of you will run well. Each one of you will become a spiritual parent. Each one of you will become a pattern. When people in Red Deer, there'll be no excuse for anyone in Red Deer to perish because there'll be so many of us laying down a pattern of how we should live. Isn't that amazing? Let's stand this morning. I could have preached a different kind of sermon. I could have talked about God as being our Father. I could talk about honoring God. I could have talked about how God loves us. But I felt impressed this morning to challenge us. 
to be challenged. To be challenged. To be encouraged. I pray that you walk away feeling, yeah, I'm encouraged, Pastor. I'm encouraged. That's my prayer. You'll be encouraged. But not just encouraged, you'll be challenged. I want you to be challenged. I want you to say, yeah, I want to I lay down a pattern. My life, it's going to influence somebody else. It's going to affect people's lives. You know, people are watching us. People are watching you. They're watching what makes you tick, you know. And when you get into the hard place, that's when they really watch. How are you going to handle that? You know, the crucible for silver and for gold, but it's God who tests the hearts. Some of you are in trial right now. It's a test. How are you going to handle that? I'm going to handle it because I, I know what the pattern is. Jesus endured all kinds of things. He persevered all kinds of things. He remained faithful to his responsibilities and obligations. Let me say, I want to finish well. That's my prayer. I want to run well. I want, at the end of my day, people go, faithful man, faithful pattern. Right? I want that for you. I want that for your family. I want the people around you to feel so blessed because you're here on this planet. Amen? Just every head bowed here this morning. How many here feel like, you know, Pastor, I feel like I need a new beginning. I need a fresh start. I need to begin this race anew. But I want to do it. God bless you. Some are raising their hands. I want to run well. I want to lay down that beautiful pattern. I want to finish the course. I want to live out my responsibilities and obligations. Yeah, God bless you. Both men and women are raising their hands this morning. It's beautiful. I want to pray with you this morning. I want to pray for us all. We'll have an amazing run. People, when they look at your life, they're going to go, that's a, that's a faithful person. That's a godly person. That's a Jesus person. Man, I, I know what Jesus looks like when I look at your life. I know what he's like. So, Lord, I thank you for these godly people. You're raising up holy people, righteous people, doing the right thing. People that are living for your will. People who are blameless because they're fulfilling their responsibilities and obligations. They're bearing your name well. They're, they're, they're imaging your image to this world, Father. Maybe we fail and falter at times, but you're a forgiving Father. We get back up. We keep running. We're running to that finish line. We're running together. We're encouraging each other. We're coming alongside of people who need help. We're stopping. We're lifting them up. We're helping them run the race with us. We're bringing as many as we can to that finish line together. And I just want to thank you, Father, for each one here today. Godly examples, patterns of what it means to be a child of God. Lord, I just pray today. I pray for our families to be strengthened. I pray that we will learn how to honor our fathers. I pray that our fathers will be honorable people. I just thank you for that, Lord. I pray that we'll be able to have our children rise up and call us blessed. And that they've been blessed because of our lives. And that they're so thankful we're in their lives. We're not letting them down. We're running right with them. We're comforting them. We're encouraging them. We're urging them to live lives that are worthy of you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.